Welcome to the public morality. It is hardly groundbreaking news to declare how much technology influences our lives. Since Gutenberg invented the printing press, humans have embraced and adapted to various forms of innovation. Over the past several decades, through subtle but consistent infiltration, technology in positive and not so positive ways has commanded large influence of our daily lives. Joining me to discuss the impact technology has on our society is the author of this fascinating, alarming, and informative new book containing big tech, how to protect our civil rights, our economy, and our democracy, Tom Kemp. Tom Kemp, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me on. Hmm. I'd like to begin um, where you began in your text discussing um, your motivations to write containing big tech. Yes. I wanted to create a simple and comprehensive look at the issues concerning big tech that your Uncle Larry or your average politician could say, aha, I get it, without having to hand them 500 articles and say, go at it. It it really works to big tech's advantage that there's confusion on the issues. Second, I wanted to say, you know, there are actually some simple solutions to many of the problems associated with big tech, which I try to provide in the book. And then uh, the last thing is, is that there's been so much happening in the last year, such things such as AI, TikTok, the repeal of Roe versus Wade, um, that really haven't been covered in, in past books. So I wanted to give a fresh and up-to-date look at big tech. You began your tech citing um, Leland Stanford. And for those, because you're, you're, in, you're in the area where, where Leland Stanford is well-known, uh, as well as the big four railroad barons. Do, so I'm assuming, do you consider them as well as others the antecedents to today's tech giants? Yes. So we've had big monopolies in the past, but I fundamentally believe that these guys are just at a whole nother level. So past monopolies like Standard Oil were very powerful, but they didn't know everything about you. And the core business model of big tech is to collect as much data about each and every one of us and use that Um, as part of their business models. So it is just at a whole nother level. But yes, in the past, we've had monopolies. These uh, five tech companies are monopolies right now. They're mainly unregulated in their core markets, but in my opinion, are now causing serious threats to our civil rights and democracy. Now, I'm sure these five are are known to most, if not all, but just just give us the five uh, real quickly, if you would. Absolutely. So the five big tech companies are Meta, formerly known as Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And I want to be clear that you know they have really built innovative products that improve many aspects of our lives, but their intrusiveness and our dependence on them have in fact created some pressing threats to our civil rights economy and democracy. And uh, that's what I wanted to cover in the book. I want to, I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask you that later, but I'm glad you raised it. Just spend a couple of minutes because it's so easy to say big tech and make them the evil behemoths. But um, 
but we don't we need to give some attention to what some of the positives you see um, as a result of, of, of the technological advances in the 21st century. Absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that many of them rose into being because that other monopolies um, were regulated or broken up, et cetera. So AT&T was a very large monopoly, but uh, it was broken up and that really caused the telecommunications revolution. And eventually companies like Apple with its iPhone and Google with Android were able to flourish. If it was an AT&T only world, uh, we wouldn't have these type of companies. Similarly, Microsoft uh, used to have the dominant browser, uh, Internet Explorer, because it required uh, its OEMs, its hardware manufacturers to only support and be only be able to use Internet Explorer. But because the Department of Justice really in its last main big antitrust case was able to put pressure onto Microsoft, uh, it uh, opened up the Windows operating system to allow for other browsers. And that's where companies like Google came into being uh, with its powerful, not only uh, its search engine, but eventually came out with products such as the Chrome browser, uh, et cetera. So yeah, the, the, the big tech companies have done some amazing you know, companies and products and uh, uh, that do everything from e-commerce to mobile devices, to internet search, to uh, operating systems for phones and PCs and our Macs, et cetera. Uh, the, the core issue is that they've historically been unregulated in terms of their business practices. There's been no guardrails in terms of the amount of data that they've been collected. And there's been no um, guardrails in terms of the acquisitions they could do, um, the moves they could make to make themselves kind of almost too big to care uh, from a competitive perspective. And being in Silicon Valley, uh, there's really now uh, core parts of the economy are really off limits uh, because there's no fly zones that, that, that startups can't compete with these companies. Uh, which I don't think is healthy for our economy as well. I've been talking about a civil rights democracy, but I think this is also a big issue with our economy too, when you have so much power concentrated in, in so few companies. You know, uh, given the focus of your book and, and for the purposes of this conversation, I mean, we're discussing tech uh, more broadly. We're talking, about, we're talking about big tech. And one of the things that I sort of take, took away um, from your text uh, is unlike the worlds of railroads and automobiles uh, that were once dominant, uh, technology has sort of organically woven into our daily lives in so many different ways. And uh, would that be an accurate assessment on your part? Absolutely. I mean, the scale of big tech is just amazing. I mean, Google has four billion users of its product, the, the Earth's population is what, 8 billion or so. Um, so like half the world uses a Google product. Um, Facebook has well over 2 billion users using its Instagram, its Facebook, its Messenger, WhatsApp, um, etc. And so if you got, kind of look at everything that uh, 
we rely on in today's digital age. We rely on our mobile phones. We rely on our uh, PC or, or Mac. Um, we rely on a set of cloud services that are operated by primarily the three of the five big tech companies, et cetera. You know, we really can't, you know, it's hard enough for us just to put our phone down for a couple of days and get off the grid because of, you know, we're kind of addicted to our devices. Uh, but it's virtually impossible to operate in today's world without having to use one of their products um, to, you know, just do basic communication, uh, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, I know that um, recently in, in, in my building, um, Wi-Fi is one of the services that we, we get uh, for our building. And the Wi-Fi was down and um, someone was complaining and they said to the um, building manager in an email, listen, not having Wi-Fi is second only to not having running water. I mean, that's how important. I thought that was an amazing statement. And I go, well, yeah, that, 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 there's something to that. So that. That shows you the importance that you're, that you're talking about. Well, I think kids like today, I mean, we, we see this that, you know, kids that don't have good Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi at all, you know, you know, can't learn. Right. Um, especially, you know, coming out of COVID, there was so much uh, remote learning, but also a lot of the research they need to do or, or their homework is online, et cetera. And so, yes, we are in a digital age. Um, that we're reliant on, you know, the network being on, you know, seven by 24, but it turns out that there's five gatekeepers in the economy and in our digital age that everything flows through them. And, you know, we just have to hope that they're benevolent, et cetera, but it turns out that a lot of their business practices that we agree to, such as give me these free services and okay, you can have my data. And in the past, it was about being served ads. But what's happening increasingly is that this data that's being collected by us is being weaponized against us, right? Um, and for example, if you go out and seek an abortion, you know, that, that data of you looking on Google Maps for the directions for abortion clinic or your, your online searches, et cetera, um, that can be used against you, right? Um, or the advertising systems that big tech has built to serve you ads can also be used to exclude you from ads, such as ads for housing, uh, for example. So if you want to use big tech to target women to say, sell them, uh, young women uh, with young kids to sell them diapers, you can use the same advertising system to exclude young women with children from seeing housing rentals. So uh, it's where, you know, that's the double-edged sword of, of uh, having all this data being collected that eventually someone can use that against you. And the way that kind of the the world has evolved over the last few years, especially as we look at, for example, anti-trans and LGBTQ plus sentiment that the data about people 
you know, could be used potentially to discriminate the digital red line people or be weaponized against them to subpoena them or to even arrest them. Um, and that's kind of the world that we're in, uh, unfortunately. Well, since you, uh, I'll just, I'll just leapfrog to, to, to this next point because you, you, you talk about it in your text. Um, sp- speak specifically to what, what is the weaponization of information? Is that it right there? Or is there more to it than what you just articulated? Well, the, the issue is, is that we do allow um, these firms and these firms basically have the green light to collect as much information about us as possible. And, and so basically we're like in that big brother movie uh, or TV show where we're constantly in effect being recorded. um, And that data is either being used to serve ads to you um, or the data is actually being sold and it can run to some significant risk. It can lead to, for example, identity theft that, that if it gets the data gets into the bad guy's hands, they know so much about you that they can answer those security questions, right? Or they can figure out your passwords, or they may know personal things about you that even your family or friends don't know, such as you may have a medical condition such as cancer. I talked about how it could actually be used to discriminate against you in terms of not having you see specific ads or the data could be used to not hire you if you have a medical condition or pregnant. Um, But also what we saw coming out of the elections of 16 and 20, the data can be used to manipulate you. If you use, uh, for example, artificial intelligence and serve up specific ads that, that prey on your fears, your concerns, you, it could help put you into proverbial rabbit holes. Um, and that can and has been exploited by political actors or foreign states um, to you know, kind of help um, rile the population up and, and influence the actual election. Uh, and the reality is, is that during the 2016 election that uh, 120 plus million uh, Americans saw ads uh, regarding the uh, election in 2016 from the Russians. Um, and I don't think they were doing that from a benevolent perspective as well. So they were trying to influence you. Um, and then, of course, we just have situations where people do fall into conspiracy theories. Uh, I call them rabbit holes, um, where it's really tough for people to get out of these conspiracy theories because the the information that's just constantly being fed to them, the videos, et cetera, play on their past data, and it and they're addicted to this stuff, and and they they they, they start believing these crazy conspiracy theories. Hmm. You know, again, these these, these are my takes, and uh, I just um, I, I enjoyed the book thoroughly, um, very much, and certainly hope that our listeners will, will will follow suit and pick it up when it's available. But but reading your text, I felt I was pulled in two different directions, um, and you you sort of touched on it earlier. But I you know I I was pulled in a direction that there's a there's a part of the culture, it may be a minority, but it's a part of the culture that's pulling us in a pre-Roe v. Wade world. That's in tension with this sort of really progressive, um, futuristic uh, movement led by big tech 
that so we're sort of being tugged in both ways and ultimately big tech's the beneficiary whichever direction we go and i wonder how am i making too much of that how, how you how you saw that as the author yeah i, I really think that um that you know big tech really thinks that hey it's no problem what's the big deal right you know and people shouldn't be so concerned about privacy etc um but I don't think they just know the reality of kind of human nature and the way things evolved. Um, and they don't really fundamentally, they still don't really understand um, that, uh, for example, you know, children, right? That they design their products one way and they don't realize that one third of the internet are children. And it's completely unacceptable to have all this data collected about children. If it happened in the real world, Right, the, the physical world, people would be arrested for stalking to be to be tracking what kids are doing, et cetera. But in their mindset, it's okay to kind of serve behavioral or targeted advertising to, to kids based on their data. But but kids are at a stage in their life where they're trying to explore who they are, um, where they want to fit within society, et cetera. And as they go through that learning journey and experimentation and trying to find who they are and, and, and what they want to be, it, it's not healthy for people to have basically hoovered up everything that they've been doing um, and then kind of pushing them in directions. And so we've seen examples that of, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, the Wall Street Journal they actually had some reporters sign up as like 13-year-olds on TikTok, for example. And then within a few days, they're being served videos uh, involving drugs, prostitution, uh, slash pornography, uh, et cetera. And, you know, as adults, we can probably navigate around that when all of a sudden a crazy video shows up. We, we may be able to stop it, but, but our kids are not able to do it. So it just... You know, but, but by the way, I, I, I do provide solutions. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here. Um, I do uh, actually say, hey, there's actually some really good solutions uh, to these problems that both us as consumers can do, but also uh, what policymakers. So I, I, I don't want to just sit around and just identify the problems, but I also uh, feel that uh, there's an opportunity to provide some solutions, which I try to focus on in the book as well. And we're, and we're definitely, uh, and I've carved you out some time to talk about some of those solutions. So we, so we will we will make sure you do not leave this broadcast as Debbie Downer. We will, we will, make, sure, <laughs> we will make sure of that, sir. Um, but I'm wondering, is this, you know, just you just give the 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 the, the TikTok example. Is this, um, uh, I guess, consistent with other um, dominant industries in that when you sort of are monopolistic, you take on an, the amorality of the market, and so the market is amoral. So you're not thinking, is this right or is this wrong, but you're thinking more in terms of this is profitable. Has big tech, in your view, fallen into that trap? Yes, they have, but they're also capitalistic entities. And so it's also uh, in their best interest to also try to make it so that they block competition. And what's happened is that 
they because they in effect run marketplaces. So you know, Amazon is a marketplace. Um, both Google and Apple provide marketplaces in the form of apps. That they've also started um, and have um, taken the data in the marketplace where they've observed what other products are selling, etc. And then they come out with their own versions of it, right? Um, and kind of knock off brands or, you know, in the case of Amazon, they call it Amazon Basics. Um, and they start competing with other participants in the marketplace, but they have a fundamental advantage in which that the other participants, the Don big tech participants in their own marketplace have to pay the big tech firm like in the case of uh, mobile apps, they have to pay Google or uh, Apple 30% um, if, if, it, if their products purchased through the marketplace, but they don't have to pay that themselves. So if Apple, for example, were to offer an ebook uh, or an audio book um, on the Apple platform, um, they don't have to pay that extra 30% that a Spotify or someone else were to charge if you were to buy the book right there. And that gives them a fundamental uh, unfair advantage as well. So it's kind of the what you've talked about, uh, the aspect of, you know, anything goes, you know, because we're all a part about this monetization and the users are kind of stuck in, inside our walled gardens because it's very difficult to leave uh, because our products lack interoperability. But it's also the fact that what they started doing in the marketplace is that they started participating in the marketplaces that they've created that have created unfair advantages to them and have locked out other companies. Um, and they've basically have gotten to the point of they're kind of too big to care. And I think a great example of that is my son's Instagram account was hacked, right? Someone stole it and started, I don't know, publishing like Bitcoin stuff or whatever. And he tried for, for days to get his Instagram account back. And it's like virtually impossible. And then I think that kind of becomes the realization that you're really not the customer to Meta who owns Instagram uh, because they're not going to like have a support you know, hotline to immediately call you back and say, oh, sorry, sir, your, your account's been hacked, et cetera. Their customers are the advertisers, right? Where they will immediately call back if, if someone's advertising on their platforms, but not uh, us as actual end users. So it's a complete kind of, uh, you know, perversion of what we think about uh, us using a product where we expect a certain level of support. And it kind of flows down to other companies of the ecosystem, uh, et cetera. And it's just, it's just not healthy. I want to, you just touched on some of the things really important for, for as much as we look at these large behemoths at the end of the day, I'm not belittling this, um, but they're really, um, it's about advertising. I mean, we we tend to forget that we think of all this revolutionary stuff, but it really gets down to I've got five billion eyes to to look at to to, to show you, and we're just selling advertisement. Yes, and their motivation is, and this is how they're increasingly using artificial intelligence, and probably TikTok is the best example of that. TikTok. You know, learns from your swipes up, down, you know, pauses, etc., and starts 
not only collecting the information, but using its the 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 algorithms to serve you up more and more stuff that they think that you like. And I've even heard people say that TikTok knows me better than I know myself, right? Like, how do they know to serve that ad to me, et cetera? And it keeps us on their platforms. So then they can in turn, you know, serve us more ads. So it's, they're doing things that's in the best interest for them as companies, to your point, to sell us ads. So it's, it, it, it's not healthy, uh, you know, to uh, basically be handing our kids phones and allowing them to use TikTok and because eventually it becomes highly addictive uh, for them. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't hand them a phone and you shouldn't allow, you know, kids to participate in, in modern society, but we need to be aware um, and there probably should be some guardrails that eventually, for example, a guardrail is, hey, maybe stop the self-playing mechanism after a certain amount of time. Maybe limit the amount of data being collected, especially for children, if it involves sensitive information, et cetera. Uh, like we have laws that reduce the number of commercials that can be shown on Saturday morning to kids when we, you and I used to, to watch cartoons but there aren't similar guardrails to the amount of advertising that are being served to children as well. So there's just a whole host of things that we need to really rethink um, in this digital age that is dominated uh, by five companies. I'm gonna raise a question that I'm sure others um, that are listening can identify. So Tom Kemp, um, so what if I happen to like say um, luxury watches. I research them and then suddenly I get bombarded with ads from high-end watch companies. Why is that a bad thing? Your response? Well, my response is a couple things. So first of all, we should have the ability to consent to that and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm cool with, with that, right? But um, so there should be basic, you know, choice um, here. But you use the luxury watch example. There was just recently uh, incidents where people, consumers were going, and it's still happening, that they go to uh, pharmacies. Um, they go to you know the the, the the top 10 pharmacies here in the US and they go online and instead of luxury watches, uh, they type the word plan B. They type, you know, HIV test, right? They type, uh, you know, Adderall, uh, et cetera. So do you want um, people bombarding you with ads regarding uh, adult diapers? Probably not, or that you, you have cancer, et cetera. So, you know, so there, there are things that you probably, there's sensitive personal information that uh, in the case of that medical type stuff is not covered under HIPAA, that they have the free reign to, to take that and sell that to other companies known as data brokers. And pretty soon the entire world knows that you were doing, you were on a pharmacy site searching for adult diapers or Adderall or plan B or HIV test, et cetera. And, and then now anyone with their credit card can get that information, et cetera. And eventually that could potentially be used uh, against you um, uh, when you seek employment or try to get a loan, et cetera. So there, 
it's a slippery slope. Once you kind of allow this for luxury watches, you run the risk of collecting the same type of information about kids, uh, about uh, you know personal sensitive health information, uh, et cetera. Um, so I, I think there just needs to be a federal privacy law that that needs to be able to say, um, hey, I have the right to know what's being collected about me. Um, I, ha I have the right to say no to the sales of my information. And I also have the right to have my data deleted. I mean, so we need kind of core rights associated uh, with the collection of our information in today's digital age. And the United States is one of the few countries that does not have a comprehensive privacy law. We There's now 10 states that have uh, state laws regarding privacy, uh, but the vast majority of the United States uh, has zero rights to say no to the collection or even know what's being collected about us as well. And so I think the transparency, people can still conduct this type of business. I think as long as there's a transparency and a consent aspect to it, then I think that's much better for society. Do, do you think some of this is the result of sort of this benign acceptance, we'll just call it that, that, uh, well, Tom, I have nothing to worry about. I've done, I've done nothing wrong. So, and that, and, and that sort of thinking creates what I'm calling this benign acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, Hey, I have nothing to hide. Right. Um, but I think that kind of blew up with the Dobbs decision, um, where now there is reproductive health care uh, you know, is illegal or banned in a number of states. And, uh, you know, so if, you know, seeking, you know, uh, an abortion, um, and if you're one of those states that you're going to go online and research your, your options, uh, you're going to figure out potentially where uh, out-of-state abortion clinic is, um, et cetera. And uh, it, it's already happening. Um that in Nebraska, uh, a mother and a teenager, they, they, uh, the teenager had an abortion and uh, the police subpoenaed that person's messages, right? Um, and uh, so it, it's, uh, and then we've also had instances where, for example, there was a, uh, a priest uh, who was gay and uh, that person was actually outed because a, a reporter with a Catholic news organization uh, bought data on that person and was able to track that person actually going to gay bars, et cetera. We've had instances where the military has actually bought uh, data regarding users of a Muslim prayer app. I mean, I can just go down the entire list. Just recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that an anti-abortion group in Wisconsin uh, bought data and was able to serve ads to people that and serve ads based on geolocation to people that were in uh, Planned Parenthoods, et cetera. So I, I have like 50 examples of like, oh my gosh, people are doing that? And the answer is yes. Um, and so um, I think we're kind of at a day and age where just like the, the you know, ads that can be s served to 
and targeted to uh, young to young women with young children can be used to exclude advertising for for housing for jobs for those same people and it can apply to to races etc or, or using proxies um, based on you know musical interest or other aspects to not show people jobs not show people etc and it's been found to be happening um, and uh, so that's that's kind of the double-edged sword of having all this data collected that eventually it can be it can give you great services but it can be used potentially it can be weaponized against you um, and uh, we we need fundamental control uh, and rights to you know tell tell these companies that please don't do this when the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, 1787. Um, everything that you're talking about now could not even be conceived. So the Fourth Amendment could conceivably be violated now without anyone ever entering your home, and you could have these Fourth Amendment rights violated. Uh, added to that, privacy, though not exp expressly stated in the Constitution, has really been with us as a deeply held value since Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965. Um, talk about the big tech threat, maybe beyond that, to American democracy as we currently understand it. Well, I think fundamentally, it's not healthy to have such wealth concentrated in the hands of a few entities. And what we've seen is over the last two years that when there have been some proposals at the federal level uh, to uh, kind of crack down from an antitrust perspective, to uh, come out with a kids online safety bill, I can go through whole, the whole list that the, the tech industry spent over a quarter of a billion dollars um, and we're able to apply pressure and actually get the vast majority of both antitrust as well as technology guardrail-based bills killed, right? Um, so, you know, money talks, right? Um, and so I think that is a key way, just when you have a concentration of power, um, that democracy can be stifled, okay? Um, but then we also have situations in which, yes, the Fourth Amendment uh, basically says, if there's gonna be a, a search and seizure, you have to go to court, right? But because uh, it turns out that there's these, en these entities that work in the big tech ecosystem called data brokers that we don't even know who they are. They, they collect all this information, they buy it and they sell it, et cetera. What we've actually found is that uh, government agencies, instead of going to a court and saying, hey, I need to track this person and where they're going, et cetera, they're just buying that data from data brokers. And they're basically circumventing the Fourth Amendment. Um, and, and so that's not good, right? That, uh, that 
the the guardrails that we put up with the Fourth Amendment that uh, if you want to basically do a search and seizure, you need to get a court to to agree to that well you don't have to do that and in fact it's not only the government but anyone else can in effect search your your persons your houses and your papers and effects because they're all stored in the cloud and there are people out there that say just hey just give me your credit card and i'll, I'll hand this all the stuff over uh, about you um and uh it, it, again it's 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 just not healthy now now we're getting to the real reason i wanted to have you on from, from my own personal um, complaints. It's, a, it's, it's really not about the listeners. This is this is about me. Um, <laughs> and here's, and I'm sure others feel this way. Uh, here, my personal complaint uh, has always been, and it may not be related to what we're talking about. So if you say, Byron, that's, not, that's another issue, I'll, I'll acquiesce. But it bothers me, let's say, when I sign up for something, and I feel like I've got to hire Hercule Perot to unsubscribe. And it just drives me crazy that signing up, I mean, getting off is far more onerous than signing up. Am, am I making something up here? Is, is this no, actually, this is a big issue. Um, and basically, yeah, they give you like one click or two click to sign up. But God forbid, if you try to unsubscribe, uh, that it becomes basically a roach motel where you can go in, but you can't go out. Um, and, uh, and so these things are known as dark patterns where they explicitly put forth user interfaces uh, that try to change your behavior um, or block you from doing what you want to do. Um, and uh, thank goodness uh, there's uh, a relatively new chair uh, of the FTC, Lena Khan, um, and the FTC now is going after organizations regarding the dark patterns. And so, for example, uh, the publisher's clearinghouse, like the sweepstakes people, um, they just uh, paid a $18 million fine and they were banned from doing that. And you can just kind of imagine like people signed up for different things and you know, thinking that they won something where, and then in the end, you know, they probably got magazine subscriptions up, up the, the Wahoo. Um, but, but just, uh, the other week that, um, the Amazon, uh, for their prime, um, was, uh, sued, uh, because, uh, it was very difficult for, and it is very difficult for consumers to, to unsubscribe from prime. I mean, they made it incredibly easy to, to sign up for Prime, it was the, the one click, uh, but uh, that I think they referred to it in their own internal documents as like the Odyssey, right? Like, you know, the, like there was like Project Odyssey, which had to do with this epic, you know, journey, et cetera. And they actually, you know, put into the documentation, the internal design to make it very difficult. And uh, not only is the FTC suing Amazon about that, but also uh, Amazon's being sued in, uh, in Norway, for example. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you, it, it's amazing, like 
how much, you know, on our credit card are like, we find that like subscriptions, like you sign up for the 30 days and then you, you cancel, but they say they, they you know, you didn't cancel, et cetera. There's so much, I'm going to call it subscription fraud, right. Uh, that occurs that you literally almost need, uh, yeah, a, a bot to like tap you on the shoulder and remind you uh, or even do the work for you as well. You could probably even create a business, uh, uh, of like unsubscribing people and trying to figure it all out because it's it's like the, the the bars that they set up are just incredibly difficult and it is called it actually has a term it's called dark patterns and there are lawsuits about this um, going on right now so you're you're not alone in this. I feel I feel better now. All right, <laughs> um, I want to talk about. Artificial intelligence, because you raise it in the book uh, again about the monopolistic nature that the, the big five are really investing in AI. And let's begin with Tom. Well, just talk about some of the benefits to AI, if you would. Yeah, I mean, so AI is basically um, the, to the point where like the technology can actually learn and the, the software can learn. And so we've always had algorithms and algorithms are basically mathematical step-by-step -step instructions. And we've had it, you know, for thousands of years, the Greeks were, you know, doing, you know, mathematical formulas, et cetera. But, but what's different now with artificial intelligence is that these algorithms can start learning right and based on the data and they actually adapt um and algorithms and and artificial intelligence have been actually used for a number of years i mean we've most of the stock trading occurs you know electronically humans are not involved etc but with the increase in the amount of data and the computing horsepower uh, it's really taking on to the to the really the next level and ai um it has a lot of positive uses. For example, uh, voice recognition, the personal assistants, you know, the, the Siri, the Alexas, they all use AI. Um, you know, I, I actually have a Tesla and it's pretty amazing the, the sensors that it can identify a car next to you or differentiate between a, a lamppost and a bike, et cetera. And I'm really excited about the, the things that can be done from a medical perspective in terms of better analyzing tests um, and detecting, you know, illnesses, uh, et cetera. So there's so many good things that can be done with AI. I think AI has kind of reached, you know, kind of the popular imagination over the last six months because of the generative aspect of AI, which is the ability to type text, create an image, or type a little bit of text, and it can give you multiple paragraphs, et cetera. And I know people are freaking out that, like, um, you know, we'll all all high school and college kids, you know, will they just simply use chat GPT to, you know, generate answers to all the, to, to their homework, et cetera. Um, so th that's, that's the good stuff. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff happening um, with AI um, out there. Um, and, uh, and big tech is definitely, you know, on the forefront of not only providing the backend systems, but, but building the AI themselves. Well, well, of course, the, the real fear for those of us who are old enough we, that seen 2001 Space Odyssey, that Hal's going to take everything over. So, that, I mean, that's, I mean so, so let's talk about some of the downsides, Hal notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. So, look, um, that AI 
could be used in what's known as like high risk systems um, and where it directly impacts the, the safety and the well-being of humans. And that could the, the well-being could also be, for example, uh, getting approved for a loan, getting into college, um, you know, things of that nature. And the problem that we run into is that if AI is making the decisions and in, as part of this automated decision-making process that AI facilitates, that we have no recourse to say, wait a minute, there's, there's no humans involved in this process. And frankly, a lot of the, the tech companies don't even understand the results that come out from the AI systems as well. And so, so there, there is a big concern about the, the need to insert a human into the decision-making process because there's a lot of decisions, uh, loan, the financial, healthcare, medical, et cetera, uh, that shouldn't just mainly be made by uh, a computer, for example. Um, but then also AI can be used um, for addictive reasons. Um, and increasingly, especially in the big tech companies, what they're trying to do is they want to you know, their business models are, are selling you ads. So they want to keep you on their platforms as long as possible. And so what we're seeing is AI is being used to rile you up, uh, to continuously autoplay, to provide these dark patterns, to keep you on their platforms, to trick you to not unsubscribed, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so we, we run the risk of um, not actually, you know, having bias creep into the AI when it comes to these, uh, you know, life related uh, decisions. And there's concern about AI discriminating. We have no recourse, but there's also um, concerns about um, the addictive nature. And, and the one last thing, you know, we talked about dark patterns. Here's another uh, expression called deep fakes, which kind of uh, fools that, that you take uh, some images of an individual and then overlay it on a video. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, Byron, you're the star of Indiana Jones, right? You are Indiana Jones, right? And so, you know, that, oh, that's pretty cool that, that we can put Byron uh, as Indiana Jones and show him in the movie. But uh, deep fakes can also be used um, negatively uh, in terms of, uh, for example, uh, pornography, et cetera. Um, and so there's, as I said before, like a lot of technology has a double-edged sword associated with it. So those are some of the kind of more exploitative uses of, of AI. When you said, when you said I could be Indiana Jones, I was already shaking my head. I just, I just figured, no, someone's going to have me just slaughtering banshees. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> just, you know, I just, that's not good. You touched on this earlier, so I want to come back to it. Um, you, you write early in the text on page 13, quote, big tech facilitates this surveillance by creating walled gardens uh, where we are enticed to enter to take advantage of their highly valued, convenient free services. And we remain in those gardens given their stickiness, a combination of our reliance on their services and the inability for us uh, to move alternative solutions easily and the often addictive nature of their services. So I guess I, I'm wondering, it, it seems to me that when I read that passage, there's a seductive nature in that we don't even know we're in the walled garden. Is that, is that, that, that accurate? I mean, we're, yeah, 
So big tech, you know, starts out by offering us a set of free services and we, we go in and we start using their free services. Um, but their goal is to mine and extract what we do inside their walled gardens um, and to service ads. And of course, it's in their best interest to keep us there as long as possible because they can service more ads, right? Um, but the fundamental issue is that as more and more people enter the walled gardens, it starts building this thing called network effects um, where the service becomes even more valuable and we're more relying on us. And if we actually want to leave the walled garden, for example, if we want to get off of Facebook, of course you can. You can say, I, don't, I no longer want to use Facebook. But the big issue is that you can no longer communicate back to people um, that are still inside the walled gardens because they purposely have set it up that there, there's no interoperability there as well. So in some sense, like, oh, geez, yeah, I do want to know what's going on with my friends and family. And unless you're able to convince all your friends and family to move to another platform, you're kind of stuck in there. And the, the tech companies realize that, um, that, that they have a captive audience because they haven't built interoperability into their platforms um, that they can kind of continue executing upon their business model. And they're not really being pressed um, by competitors or alternatives to make their products uh, more friendly from a privacy or consumer protection perspective. And so they almost get to the point where they're almost too big to care. Um, and uh, they'll just continue going their, their, their way uh, because they're not being pushed or pressured, not only from companies, but also from their actual users because they don't have any alternatives because if you leave, you, you can no longer communicate with, with people that still remain on the platform. And that's an issue. Um, as promised, um, uh, we'd like to hear some, some of the solutions. What, what can be done so we don't leave this conversation, just, just the dire feeling of helplessness. So, so what are some of your solutions, Tom? Yeah, so I think from an individual consumer perspective, we can reduce our digital exhaust, our data footprint um, that's out there. And um, Apple actually introduced a feature on iOS, which is the operating system for the iPhone uh, called App Tracking Transparency or ATT. Um, and right now, I think you know over 90% of consumers have actually turned it on, which is good. And that actually blocks third-party tracking from occurring inside your mobile apps. And uh, in fact, when uh, Apple came out with it, you know, Meta, the, the makers of Facebook, announced that, hey, we're going to be uh, $10 billion short from a revenue perspective because of the, the cutting off of data. The issue is, is that, well, first of all, we want the other 10% of people to sign up for it. Um, but the similar type capabilities don't exist on Android or are not turned on by default on your PC. So if you do have um, a PC, you should go in and configure your browser to not allow third-party cookies, um, or you can download a free plugin like uh, this thing called Privacy Badger. It's, it's free. It's, it's actually built by a, a privacy organization called EFF that will block the third-party tracking that occurs uh, on the website. And then on Android devices, uh, 
that they don't have Google naturally doesn't have anything comparable to ATT, which what Apple has to, to block third parties, but you can download the DuckDuckGo app. Uh, you don't have to use it from a browser perspective, but it will also block the third party trackers. But so just doing things like that will significantly re reduce the amount of data that's being collected on you. You should also set your social settings to private as opposed to public so your data won't be scraped. So those are things, and I document them in uh, the uh, appendix one uh, in the book, and I have other recommendations um, that within five minutes, you've kind of completely reduced the footprint. But the other solutions I talk about are things that we can do from a policy perspective. And, and I think that we can push our local representatives as well as our federal representatives to do more. And I actually provide kind of a, some simple things that we can do in terms of policies, guardrails, regulations, et cetera, um, that can actually have a big uh, difference. And, and once I'm putting my money where I'm, my mouth is in California, I actually uh, proposed and uh, drafted a law that my local state senator uh, has taken on. It's called the California Delete Act. And it would give consumers the ability to go to a single portal and get all their data deleted from data brokers just by going and putting your, your name and your email address, your mailing address, hit the delete button, 30 seconds, boom, your data is deleted from hundreds of data brokers. So that's something that I did and I influenced my uh, local representative and it's working its way through the California legislature Senate Bill 362, uh, as we speak, so other people can do, you know, similar things in terms of pushing their their representatives to do simple bills such as this that could have actually a significant uh, impact. Well, given our current trajectory, coupled with your years of expertise, are you hopeful, cynical, um, that the, the things you articulated in in this book? Um, will be altered, or, or do you think we're just going to go down, to use your words, down this rabbit hole? I think there just needs to, I mean, one of the reasons I fundamentally wrote the book was that I wanted to raise awareness and visibility for the issues, because oftentimes just people are like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I know it's an issue or whatever, but, but what's happened over the last few years with the election interference, with the Dobbs decision, with, with uh, the whole things that are happening in our society in terms of uh, trans and LGBTQ people are, 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 are being, you know, demonized, et cetera. It, it just, you know, that this now we're in a situation where the data can and will be weaponized against us. And then if you start layering on AI that can create dark patterns, deep fakes, et cetera, yet things could get worse. But what I wanted to do is, is that I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And it turns out there are that we've actually solved comparable problems in the past, that we we did break up standard oil, that we did rein in the railroads, we broke up AT&T. Um, and a huge telecommunications revolution occurred. We got Microsoft not to force and require and bundle Internet Explorer, and companies like Google were created because of that, et cetera. So we've actually in the past 
taken a stand against these, you know, large octopuses, these robber barons, etc. And, you know, the telecommunications revolution occurred because of it. The internet and online search and browsing kind of revolution occurred because of that. So I'm optimistic that if we just raise awareness and visibility, um, you know, for some of these issues, we implement some of the things that I recommend, not only at our own personal level, but, but having laws where we actually empower people to have the right to say no and to the collection and sale of their data and the, the right to know what is being collected, just like we have food labels, right? We, we need to have the equivalent uh, nutrition labels for content. Was this generated by AI for mobile apps? Like, well, what data do you actually collect? We should have a privacy nutrition label so people can know exactly, are they just collecting information about me buying watches or are they they're actually collecting information about my reproductive health, et cetera. So I am optimistic that if we continue to raise awareness and visibility and empower consumers and, and know that if they start pushing, um, then good things can happen. And we've done it in the past. And I fundamentally believe we can do it again. The book containing big tech, how to protect our civil rights, our economy and our democracy. And our guest has been its author, Tom Kemp. Tom, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Public Rally. I much appreciated your, your wise counsel and insight. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.